welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 16, Charlottetown, Here We Come. When a cabal of former enemies decided in June of 1864 to build a temporary coalition government based on the simple premise of constitutional change, they had a plan. Either they would create a federal structure within Canada itself, allowing Upper and Lower Canada to govern much of their own affairs under a broader general government. Or, and this second option was preferred, they would head east and propose to their maritime colleagues a wider confederation of the colonies in British North America. The timing seemed perfect. Weren't the maritimers already planning a union of their own anyway? So, why not just crash the party and convince the Maritimers to join with their fellow British North Americans and create a truly great nation? The only problem is that the Maritimers were, in practice, doing no such thing. Yes, in theory, the various legislators had talked about having a conference on maritime union, but then the Canadians had gone and funded Sanford Fleming's survey trip, allowing the Nova Scotians and New Brunswickers to think that perhaps they could get the intercolonial railway anyway, without the hassle of maritime union. Now, some of the governors were keen on maritime union, especially young Arthur Gordon of New Brunswick. But to everyone else, maritime union had about the same level of urgency as cleaning your furnace ducts has for a homeowner. No doubt you should get around to it, but, well, it doesn't stir the passions. And then came the missive from Governor General Lord Monk to the governors in the maritime colonies. The Canadians wanted to stop in and put a proposal before this conference you're holding. So perhaps now would be a good time to actually, you know, organize the conference by, like, setting a date and maybe even a location for this supposedly already arranged conference. Now, the Maritimers occupied much of July with figuring out these rather significant details. They decided that the conference should almost certainly be hosted in Charlottetown, if only to ensure that the unenthusiastic island government even sent delegates at all. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia created their list of five delegates each and conferred on them negotiating powers. PEI didn't even do this. Yes, it sent delegates, but these delegates were there only to watch and not to make independent decisions. There was a bit of a fuss about whether the Canadian visitors would disrupt the whole maritime union scheme, but this came from the Nova Scotia governor. Once he had word from Britain that maritime union could proceed even within the Canadian wider scheme, the maritime governors put these niggling worries behind them and set a date of the 1st of September of 1864 for everyone to meet in the cozy capital of Charlottetown on Prince Edward Island. Remember, at this point, the Maritimers were already busy entertaining the other Canadian visitors, Darcy McGee and his troop, on the big intercolonial drink. The Canadian ministers, though aside from Darcy McGee, had skipped out on this trip. Instead, they were in Quebec City working out the details of their proposed union. By the 29th of August, all was ready, and eight of the 12 Canadian cabinet ministers, along with several assistants, traveled down to the harbour in Quebec and boarded the government steamer, the Queen Victoria. 
the 173-foot-long steamer replete with both steam engines and sails, a kind of a a mid-19th century hybrid, if you will, would be their home for the next two weeks. This was the same ship that had ferried the Prince of Wales through Canadian waters on his eventful 1860 trip, traipsing from town to town trying to avoid walking under any Orange Order-themed arches. But now, in the late summer of 1864, the ship hosted the Canadian ministers who lounged on board its deck in the sunshine. After all of the intense preparation of the last few weeks, they enjoyed something of a picnic atmosphere sailing up the St. Lawrence. When they rounded the coast out into the Atlantic, they stopped in at the town of Gaspé for a a festive gathering organized by the local member of parliament. On a personal side note here, I want to say that there's a a 50% chance they docked at the wharf owned by my own ancestor. There were only two wharfs in Gaspé, this very British part of Lower Canada, and my ancestor apparently owned one of them. The area had been largely settled by military veterans at the end of the 18th century. Its port was strategically important as a naval and trade entrepot in the age of sail, and the British wanted to ensure a loyal population and so had settled large numbers of retired veterans here. In fact, until after the Second World War, the Gaspé region was a predominantly English-speaking part of Quebec. Okay, but the Canadians at this point don't care about my own family history, and they didn't linger. By midday on the 1st of September, they sailed into the harbour to catch sight of Charlottetown. The town was stuffed with people who could not care less about British North American Confederation or politics in general. That's because the circus was in town. Slaymaker and Nichols Olympic Circus, that is. It had been over 20 years since the circus last came to the island, and Charlottetown hadn't seen as big a crowd since the visit of the Prince of Wales four years earlier. Now, islanders traveled in from all over the place, and shipping companies even advertised tours to bring in visitors from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. So although the political class was very much preparing for the conference, most people just wanted to take in the trick animal shows. The Nova Scotians and New Brunswickers had arrived the day before. In fact, no one had been there to greet the poor Nova Scotians who all had to arrange their own accommodation. In the evening, most of the PEI cabinet had skipped off to the circus, but the provincial secretary, William Henry Pope, stayed back to help the the New Brunswickers find a place to stay. It wasn't easy as most of the hotels were already filled with tourists keen on seeing the circus. When the Canadians arrived the next day, William Pope again went out to greet them. It was allegedly a fairly comic scene. Pope commandeered a a bum boat used for oyster fishing and rowed himself out to form a a one-man welcoming party. The Canadians wanted to present a slightly more impressive showing. They had donned their finest suits and decked out the shipping crew in blue uniforms. The crew launched two boats in what was said to be man-of-war style with four blue-uniformed crew rowing them in. George Brown said he felt like Christopher Columbus, though the reference would probably be less admired today and probably even in 1864, not so much by the locals. Pope was undoubtedly a little overwhelmed in his tiny boat, seated as he was on a barrel and manfully following them back to shore. The Canadians headed straight for Government House to greet the Lieutenant Governor and let him know that they had arrived. Once there, though, he told the Canadians they could head directly to the legislative buildings where the conference was to take place. 
the Maritimers had begun the conference that morning. It was, after all, supposed to be about Maritime Union. However, no sooner had the Maritimers sat themselves around the conference table than they decided to put off the whole discussion of their scheme and instead address the Canadians first. So the eight Canadians traipsed over to the legislative buildings where the conference was being held and were immediately greeted with the agenda handed over to them. Christopher Columbus, indeed. The problem with reconstructing exactly what happened over the course of the next week is that the participants decided to keep no official records. There are no minutes of proceedings, certainly no transcript or hansard. We have to piece together events from private letters, and the best sources here are the letters George Brown wrote to his wife, who was just then on holiday back home in Scotland. Reporters weren't allowed into the meetings, though some participants clearly tipped off friendly reporters with a few details. We can piece together only the vaguest of generalities about discussions in the meetings, but we have a good deal more information about the rollicking good times they had once they emerged from the conference room and started to imbibe the champagne. And drink a lot they did. I've been to more than my fair share of conferences, and I'm all too familiar with the rush to the bar at the end of the day. But these gentlemen seem to have really enjoyed themselves when they had the chance. On the first day, the Thursday, Nothing much seems to have happened. The conference officially welcomed the Canadians and established who was to chair the meetings. Everyone introduced themselves, which no doubt took up an inordinate amount of time. There were eight official Canadian delegates and 15 Maritimers, five from each colony. I should say here that the Maritimers had belatedly invited Newfoundland to send delegates, but not in enough time to allow anyone to arrive. While we're on the participants, it's worth making one additional point. It's one that the historian Christopher Moore made in his his really great book, 1867, How the Fathers Made a Deal. Moore pointed out that the Charlottetown Conference and, and the Quebec Conference that came later were not just meetings between heads of governments. Instead, each delegation included representatives from both the opposition and the government. This wasn't quite the case with the Canadians in that the Rouge from Lower Canada weren't involved, so Antoine Aimé Dorian wasn't there. And in fact, he would later oppose the deal. But the government itself was actually already a coalition of opposing forces. The delegations from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island included political foes. Charles Tupper of Nova Scotia had wanted to bring Joseph Howe, but Howe was currently serving on a a British-appointed commission. And so the reform leaders from the House and the Upper House came to represent the opposition from Nova Scotia. Tupper would have liked to bring Howe, and it's it's actually intriguing to think what might have happened should he have come along, because he would later play such a formidable role in opposing confederation. Moore makes such a big deal about this inclusion of the the opposition in his book, and, and since, because the 1860s practice contrasted so much with the constitution-making practices a century later in the 1980s and 1990s, which involved only the heads of government from the federal government and the provinces. He was trying to point out that in the era right after the victory of responsible government, British North Americans really saw legislatures as sources of authority. They knew that one government could be tossed out and another brought in, or shifting coalitions could quickly reform. If you wanted an issue to be embraced by all, then you needed to include everyone from the outset. 
As Moore put it, it wasn't so much about sharing the credit as it was, should things go wrong, about sharing the blame. Now, it might seem here like a a small point, but it's one important one, I think. A lot of contemporary commentators decry the lack of democracy of 19th century Canada. But in some ways, these political figures were more democratic than what came later. Historical progress does does not always move in one direction. Back to the conference itself, though. The conference proper began on Friday morning, with two speakers taking up the whole day. Georges Cartier spoke on the general benefits of the scheme, the need of all for defense, to be wary of the Americans, and the way in which a united British North America would serve all British North Americans better than a divided series of colonies. He talked of economic self-interest, of how, yes, the interior very much wanted a coastal outlet, an avenue to the sea, certainly one that was ice-free in the winter, but also how the coastal communities of the Maritimers could benefit from an interior market. Then it was John A. Macdonald's turn. Macdonald gave a, a long but apparently quite effective speech on the many precedents for this kind of union and also the dangers of doing it wrong. By this, he most certainly pointed southward and saw in the disastrous civil war in America a reason to not create too decentralized a federation, too weak of a central government. All of this finished up by mid-afternoon, and then the delegates were entertained by a, a generous lunch at the home of William Pope, the one true believer in confederation amongst the Prince Edward Island delegates. This is the home where Brown was staying, and he seems to have thoroughly enjoyed himself that evening, sitting out, smoking on the veranda, and looking to the sea. On Saturday, it was Alexander Galt's turn. Galt had been a believer in Confederation for years by this point, and he was also the key finance man in the Canadian government. So he laid out the scheme of how the financial arrangements of such a union could work. The Maritimers were very well aware of how much larger was the Canadian debt, though not, Galt would point out, on a per capita basis. There was also the not insignificant matter of differences in customs duties and the revenues from customs. At this point in time, the largest part of all government revenue came from import and export customs and duties. So how would this major feature of finance work in a more general union? And in a context where the local governments of the colonies, or as they would become provinces, when they would lose this major source of revenue. Galt's answer must have been fairly satisfactory, at least to those present, because the rest of Saturday was a thoroughly enjoyable day. At mid-afternoon, all of the delegates headed down to the harbour where they rode out to the Queen Victoria, where the Canadians hosted a boozy and fun-filled luncheon. Over champagne and oysters, the delegates listened to more speeches, this time by Cartier and Brown. But far from sending them to sleep, everyone seemed to enjoy themselves immensely. By this point, the initial shyness had worn off and the rosy glow of a late summer afternoon drink made everyone feel as if they were doing something grand. Someone decided to jokingly make a toast to the matrimony of Canada and the maritime colonies, calling on anyone who had an objection to now come forward and speak it. No one raised a complaint, and so all on board cheerily toasted the impending marriage of the British North American colonies. 
they weren't even finished with the good times. Later that evening, the premier of Prince Edward Island, John Hamilton Gray, hosted all of the delegates at dinner. And just to confuse you, he's only one of two John Hamilton Grays at this conference. The other, a colonel, was a delegate from New Brunswick. As if two John McDonald's wasn't bad enough, now we have two John Hamilton Grays. This being Victorian-era Canada, on the next day, the Sunday, God's Day of Rest, everyone rested, as, as you did. By Monday, it was George Brown's turn to lead the conference through the constitutional questions. How exactly would the government be organized? How would powers be divided between the general and the local governments? This was a tricky issue here in Charlottetown, as it would be later at the Quebec conference to come. And frankly, all through Canadian history. The fact is that delegates disagreed on this issue. Some, John and MacDonald most especially, but Brown was also beginning to lean this way too, well, they wanted a strong central government. MacDonald and a few others really wished that the new United Nation could simply have a unitary government, as in the United Kingdom. That is, they would simply have one parliament. They looked to an America at war and pointed to the dangers of federalism, how it ought not to work. They worried that federalism was, in some ways, not even commensurate with a monarchical parliamentary system of government. That said, Brown and MacDonald and other supporters of this unitary style of government knew by this point that it just wasn't to be. Federalism was the starting point for French Canadians, for Cartier, and Langevin, who was also there, and also for Taché, ostensibly the head of the government, for these French Canadians, the basic ingredient of a wider union was that it be a federation. This would give to lower Canadians, those who would become Quebecers, their own form of government by which they could protect their culture, institutions, and traditions. Or, as the Patriot had been saying since the 1830s, nos institutions, notre langue, et nos lois. As the debate over confederation moved forward within Lower Canada, it was a debate over which form of government best protected French Canada, the current union or confederation. In other words, federalism was the starting point, the bare minimum. After that, though, as we'll see, there was a lot of room for debate and disagreement, a lot of different views about which powers should go to which level of government, whether one level of government was the truly sovereign government or whether both levels of government were fully sovereign, just in their own areas of jurisdiction. All of this, it seems, was largely glossed over at Charlottetown. People heard what they wanted to hear, and the party kept on rolling. On Monday night, the former premier and reform leader George Coles did the entertaining, but the main gist of the project had been proposed. All four of the key Canadian ministers, Cartier, MacDonald, Brown, and Galt, had laid out the whole scheme in its general dimensions. Then on the Tuesday, the whole conference discussed and debated the various elements of the scheme. On Wednesday, the Maritimers retreated briefly to a, a conclave amongst themselves. What answer should they provide their new Canadian friends? Well, it didn't take long. Not more than an hour, it seemed, and the Maritimers came out to say that they liked, in general, what they had heard. 
Brown wrote enthusiastically to Anne to say that the Maritimers found the whole scheme to be, quote, highly desirable if the terms of union could be made satisfactory. There was a lot to this if about satisfactory terms. We aren't done yet. And there was still more than two and a half years to go to satisfy those terms of union, even longer if you think that some in the various various colonies wanted out almost as soon as they came in, and some, hello PEI in Newfoundland, took a lot longer to come in. But by midday on the Wednesday, everyone at the conference felt satisfied at what they had achieved. Nothing was written down. They passed no resolutions and agreed to no specific terms. The only thing they firmly agreed on was the need to take this show on the road. They adjourned the conference to reconvene it later in the week at Halifax, and then from there to take it to St. John and Fredericton. Each main city of the region would get its share of the good times. No doubt feeling that they had done a good deal of work, they opted to spend the rest of the day and the next on holiday. On the Thursday, one week after the Canadians had arrived and with the circus having already left town, the delegates expedition to the countryside, some traipsing to the north of the island to enjoy the beautiful red sandy beaches. That evening, they returned for a grand ball hosted in the legislative buildings where they had been holding their meetings. With the delegates out of the way, workers transformed the scene, decorating with flowers and mirrors and candlelight and ribbons. There was a grand ball with dancing. The festivities proceeded so slowly that guests didn't sit down to eat until almost midnight. And then, before they could eat in peace, there were more speeches. Of course there were. George Brown claims that they went on for just under three hours, which meant they would not have eaten until almost 3 a.m. That wasn't the end of the night, though, for it was decided that everyone who was heading to Halifax would go home, pack their bags, and head down to the Queen Victoria. And that's what everyone did, arriving at the foggy harbour around 7 a.m., no doubt feeling a little worse for wear. You might think this would be the time to sleep, but no, apparently the staff on board set out a grand breakfast and everyone sat down to eat. Again. This is, as I said, the weird thing about the Charlottetown Conference. We know more about what they ate and drank than what they said. Still, it would have been an intense experience. Meetings full of tedious detail, grand vision, and potentially divisive debating points, but matched with the equal enthusiastic vigor of socializing, forming relationships from one colony to the next. Some of the delegates knew each other, but many were forming new friendships, some of which would last for years. It might seem strange that they mixed work and pleasure so heartily and easily, but it's also possible that this is one of the things that kept these men together, working towards their goal of confederation. For although none of them knew it at the time, it would take quite some time to fully realize their ambitions, and they would need sturdy constitutions to see it through. Some moralists at the time thought the good times were just too much. John Ross, the editor of Ross's Weekly on the Island, provided a Puritan-like description of the Grand Ball. Quote, Pleasure, panoplied in lustful smiles, meets and ex- embraces exuberant joy, is how he described the scene. 
quote, the fascinating dance goes merrily, and the libidinous waltz with its lascivious entwinement wiles in growing excitement. The swelling bosom and the voluptuous eye tell the story of intemperate revel. But not everyone was quite so scandalized. Another journalist who read Ross's description thought that Ross must have got lost on the way and found himself somewhere else altogether. The delegates did find some time to rest on board ship that day, though not for long. The Queen Victoria docked in Pictou Harbour just across the Northumberland Strait. From there, most of the delegates headed for a a brief tour of Nova Scotia by train and coach, taking a, a tour of some of the coal mines and eventually heading south to Halifax the next day. A few of the ministers, John A. Macdonald included, decided that they would rather just rest on board the ship. So they sailed on to Halifax, enjoying the slight break. In Halifax, the whole conference reconvened. By this time, the joys of summer were fading and it was raining on the Nova Scotia capital. They did, though, finally take their whole event public, holding a grand dinner at the Halifax Hotel with a number of speeches. This was the first chance journalists and some others could hear firsthand the kinds of issues that the conference was discussing. Much of the material was still vague, but news did begin to leak out to the public. From Halifax, they traveled to St. John, New Brunswick, and then up to Fredericton. Each town got its grand reception and a chance to hear firsthand of this new proposed union. The delegates had made an important decision. Up until now, the whole scheme was discussed in generalities. They would all reconvene in the Canadian capital at Quebec on the 10th of October. At that next conference, they would establish the specific terms of union and then decide if these were indeed satisfactory. They sent an official invitation to Newfoundland, this time with enough leeway inviting the colony's government to send delegates. They wanted this to be a grand project, a confederation of all the colonies of British North America. This whole account might make it seem as if everyone was on board, as if the whole confederation project was a done deal, and likely to those involved in the conference itself, caught up in the heady excitement of scheming and socializing, the prospects looked good. But already some maritime journalists were asking awkward questions and casting doubt on the whole affair. The delegates had drunk the champagne, but others were still sober and not nearly as enthusiastic. The historian Peter Waite put it best, I think, when he said that, quote, Confederation in the Maritimes was the remedy for no particular evils, the solution of no particular difficulties. It offered material advantages, perhaps, but it offered few enough answers for maritime political problems. And this is exactly what we'll see in the episodes ahead. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. For now, we can all look forward to Quebec City and the next conference and the chance to formalize this proposed political marriage. And yes, in case you were wondering, there will continue to be a fair bit of champagne on offer. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all of that. Like the delegates themselves, we'll soon be heading to Quebec for the conference. In our case, it will be in next week's episode. The Quebec Conference and the the whole project of British North American Confederation has come in for a lot of criticism for being too boring and pragmatic, not for not being sufficiently inspiring or democratic. So first off next week, we'll have to ask, is this criticism warranted? 
What exactly did the, del did the delegates disagree on? What did they fight over? And what, on the other hand, did they already agree on? For it's in the answer to this last question that I think we might find what's most important and most inspiring about the whole Confederation project. If you like what you're hearing uh, on the podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You can even become a supporter uh, of the podcast by heading over to our Patreon page. Just check in today's show's notes for all the details. Until next week, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. Thank you.